Hello, my name is Dan. I have a question for you. Which words on our service sheet say the most about the role of Christian faith in society today? So answers on a postcard, but I'll tell you what I think. 200 years ago, one billion people lived on planet Earth, and each year they produced a trillion dollars of stuff. Today, the world has seven billion people, but we produce a lot more than seven trillion dollars of stuff. In fact, we produce a hundred trillion dollars. So if in the early 19th century, all that money was divided evenly between everybody, everybody would have a thousand dollars, but now everybody would have 15 thousand dollars. Starting with the Industrial Revolution and more recently in the Information Age, technology has changed our world beyond recognition and the effects are startling. Only one in ten people in our world now live in extreme poverty. In all but the poorest countries, all but the poorest people can travel to somewhere hundreds of miles away. In this church in London, you can buy chocolate imported for a fair price from Ghana. And it's as easy to send a text message to two-thirds of the world's population who have a mobile phone as it is your neighbour next door. Another effect of these technological advances has been to weaken our ties to nearby people and places. Now we can choose holidays, food and friends that better suit our personal tastes rather than having to get on with what and who is immediately around us. So over time, our diverse society can divide into subgroups of people who mostly travel and eat and often think and believe the same sorts of things. This is very good at sustaining bonds between people who are like us, but offers many fewer bridges, opportunities to bridge gaps to people who are different from us in some important way. Being more connected globally may have made us less connected locally. Over the past few years, the magnitude of society's walls and the scarcity of its bridges have come sharply into focus. An economic shock 10 years ago is still being felt today, particularly by poorer people in rich countries like ours. After 200 years of rapid progress, life expectancy and wages in parts of Britain are falling. While a lot of us acknowledge the problem, we've been rather better at blaming other people, whether it's bankers or immigrants or multinational companies or the European Union, than we have at finding unifying solutions. And our public life feels spiteful rather than generous, particularly in the aftermath of a divisive referendum that split our country down the middle. Advocates for one half, pillory the other as at best citizens of nowhere, and at worst as enemies of the people, while many in the other half take an inverse reaction, dismissing their opponents as reactionary racists who are too stupid to sift truth from the lies of politicians. Sometimes we stumble into moments of inspiration where hope and shared purpose elevate our vision and unite people across boundaries. England's success at last year's World Cup gave voice to an unlikely social commentator. We're a team with diversity and youth that represents modern England, Gareth Southgate said. As a country, we've spent a bit of time being lost as to what our modern identity is. As a team, we represent that modern identity and hopefully people can connect with us. 
A few football matches seem to reach higher goals of pride in what our country can be if we work together. But while vivid at the time, these moments of national unity are fleeting and we soon drift back to familiar divisions. How can we practice this uplifting sense of common purpose more often? The starting point is to connect meaningful engagement with other people in the present to our sense of where we've come from in the past and our deepest hopes and fears for the future. The main way we do this is by cultivating the virtue of empathy, the capacity to understand how things feel from someone else's perspective. By empathizing with someone else, we affirm that our hopes and fears for a fulfilling life are tied up in theirs too, and that we both have a unique vocation and a part to play in making those aspirations reality. But empathy is like a muscle. Without practice, it withers, so it helps to have lots of opportunities to exercise it. Our society used to have lots of ways to do this through institutions, clubs, societies. These groups unite people with a shared interest. But beyond a common passion for cricket or amateur dramatics, people differed in many other ways. You might have voted leave or remain. You might support Tottenham or Arsenal. But a shared love of painting or Coronation Street taught you that it's easier to love your enemies when you have something else in common. But the technological revolution has also seen these groups decline. Chat rooms are cheaper to run than church halls, and filtering algorithms now decide which people you don't like before you've even met them. It's harder to practice empathy when we're organizing into ever tighter circles of people like ourselves and losing opportunities to build friendships with people who are different. Fortunately, some new ideas are springing up to fill the gap. The roots of empathy, as described in our reading, tell us how repeated encounter with babies helps school children to grow sensitivity to the needs of others and realize their own capacity for care. Holding an infant sparked teenage tough guy Darren, who witnessed his mother's murder aged four, to imagine how his deepest hopes of fatherhood could help transform his troubled past. And finding meaningful connection with others helps face our deepest fears as well. Barack Obama tells of a campaign stop at a barbecue restaurant, the southern state's equivalent of the coronet. I ended up shaking every hand in there, Obama said. Most of the folks in these places have been watching Fox News and think I'm the Antichrist. But if you show up, shake their hand, and look them in the eye, it's harder for them to turn you into a caricature. If you listen hard enough, everybody's got a sacred story of who they are and what their role in the world is. They're willing to share it with you if they feel you actually care about it. And that ends up being the glue around which relationships are formed and trust is formed and communities are formed. Closer to home, Dave Tomlinson told Radio 2 listeners about a recent Maundy Thursday feast right here, cooked by Mohammed and Layla, Syrian refugees who've become neighbours in Islington. The practice of hospitality and of eating together bridges new relationships across cultural or religious boundaries. In a world that feels increasingly uncertain, Dave said, it's tempting to huddle together with people like ourselves and fear those who are different. Everything changes when we encounter real people instead of imagined stereotypes. 
I can't help but feel that our political and cultural debate would be less toxic if we had more opportunities to share parts of our story and aspirations for the future with others who might vote or think differently. These conversations are hard to engineer precisely, but they emerge quite naturally in two situations. The first is intensity, when people are together for a set period of time, often away from home. Pilgrimages to Greenbelt or to Iona or my teenage summer camps at Lee Abbey in Devon create space for expansive conversations that help us pay less attention to things that might divide us back home. The change of scenery and routine help us realise that in practice, we enjoy spending time with people we might not expect to like in theory. The second situation is repetition, which brings us together in a daily or weekly rhythm of being with the same people. Half a dozen of us from church start the weekend with 500 others trying for a personal best at Finsbury Parkrun. And over the winter months at Night Shelter, the practice of sharing hospitality each week helps to forget which of us are volunteers and which are homeless guests. Routines build familiarity and trust, making it easier to value the totality of who people are, even if on first impression we find something about them difficult or familiar, unfamiliar. In about 15 minutes' time, we will repeat an ancient ritual of eating together as part of a weekly rhythm of Christian worship. Unlike other meals we eat, rather than dividing into lines between the chicken shop, pret-a-manger, and the local calf, there are no separate queues for rich and poor people, healthy and sick people, older and younger people, people with PhDs or without GCSEs. We do it with most of the same people every week, remembering those who aren't here anymore and welcoming those who've just arrived. The same bread is served to women and men, to the rainbow of races and sexualities, to people with lots of faith and those with none. On another day of the week, the people serving you might be a teacher, an artist, or a carer. They might read the Morning Star, the Mail, or Le Monde. Being together each week and participating in this ritual affirms our common inheritance and looks to a shared future. It opens our hearts and minds to the dignity and to the concerns of others. As well as a recent immigrant, you might meet a banker, a politician, or someone receiving benefits and find that people like that aren't the only reason we're in such a mess. So perhaps during communion today, or in your regular football match or choir practice, take a moment to notice somebody who's different to you in some significant way and who you might not know otherwise, and be grateful for the opportunity for that real person to challenge your imagined stereotypes. I started off with a question. Which words on our service sheet say the most about the role of Christian faith in society today? I asked for your questions on a postcard, so while queuing for communion, why not take one and write your response? After the service, during our weekly repetition of tea and coffee or our monthly repetition of church lunch, why not chat to someone you haven't spoken to before? Try to find something about you and most of your friends that's different to them and most of their friends. Then share the words you wrote on the postcard and why, and see how the other person's choice might inspire or challenge you. As you leave, drop your card into the font at the back and we'll do a word cloud like the ones already there to see what everyone else thinks. 
in a world that's been transformed by technology in a country that's divided on how to respond. My answer reflects how the church adds its voice to the success of diverse sporting teams helping fellow citizens reconnect across a fractured country. How spending time with a young infant sparks a troubled teenager to imagine his capacity for great love. And how sharing food with Fox News viewers or refugees or with homeless guests and at church lunch right here humanises people we might otherwise fear. It's a statement of unity in diversity repeated here every week by Breaking Bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body because we all share in one bread. <laughs>